it's partly my guilt about the fact that until just a few years ago, I would be driving through any neighborhood here in town and not realize that I was driving sometimes through, you know, wildlife wastelands. Things would look burdened and and lawns would look spotless. Um, and that basically it's like a sterile landscape, just to give one example. So you know, now I can drive through an adjacent neighborhood and sure there are great live oaks and everything, but I can tell now um, exactly where someone use, has used herbicide. I can tell when there's been a pesticide application on a lawn, even if there's no sign. Um, I know the exact provenance of all the non-native plants and how useless they are, or sometimes even hazardous to wildlife. So it really, you know, it really changes uh, how you even see greenery. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. If you're a speculative fiction fan, you are already going to know today's guest, Jeff Vandermeer. Though, even if you're not usually into speculative fiction, you probably are already familiar with Jeff Vandermeer. He was recently profiled in the New York Times Magazine by fellow Thresholds alum Alex Kleeman. And his first novel, Annihilation, was made into a movie of that same name starring Natalie Portman. He's also the author of the Southern Reach trilogy and most recently of the book Hummingbird Salamander. His work, in general takes as its subject the question of human beings' relationship with the natural world and what might happen to the planet and to us if that relationship continues to be as destructive as it has been. And recently, in his personal life, he's become a devotee of rewilding or restoring natural landscapes as close as possible to their native states, particularly in his own little patch of land where he lives with his wife in Tallahassee, Florida, a process he's been documenting to my delight on Twitter. He came on the show to talk about encountering that piece of land for the first time and how it took over his life and his fiction. We had given up looking for a house. We found this amazing house on the edge of a ravine, 10 minutes from the capital. And Anne was happy. My wife was happy because the house was very unique and modern and bright and airy inside. And I was happy because the yard back in the back looked like a jungle. Uh, unfortunately, I was at the cusp at that point of learning more about native plants and the first landscaper I had in to kind of like help evaluate said, well, this is all all invasive plants and like really violently invasive plants, not like stuff that you can kind of get along with over time. <laughs> and so the, the lovely jungle was actually smothering and strangling uh, all the stuff that was useful to wildlife. Uh, and that meant that suddenly I went from, we went from having to, you know, having not bought furniture in 25 years to furnish the entirety of a house twice as large as the one we were coming from and also uh, redo the yard completely. And so, uh, yeah, so it was just this tangled mass of jungle is the only way I can describe it with air potato vines and coral ardesia and nandina, which if you look them up are all things that used to be sold by, you know, by actual nurseries until they realized, uh oh, we shouldn't be selling this. Um, and uh, so that was that was that was kind of uh, the inflection point where I was like, oh my god, can I even can I do this? Do I just leave it alone and ignore it? And like like the last ten owners, or <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> um, I started researching air potato, and um, you know, I I had 
I did initially have some help from a place called Native Nurseries, which was great in terms of advice. And they took this one little plot in the back and they cleared it. So I had that to work from. <laughs> but the air potato is not something you can just like pull the roots up out of. It's this very deceptive um, vine that can grow up to 70 feet on a tree and strangle it. And it mm. comes with a little tuber, um, which I later found out is edible if I'd known at the time. We would have had many a feast. Uh, <laughs> but um, the point is that the tuber doesn't necessarily lie at the bottom of where the vine is. Um, and so you have to kind of hunt around for it. And so I made it my goal to dig up what turned out to be like 4,000 air potato tubers. What? And I became extremely obsessed. I get obsessional in my writing when I, you know, when I write a novel, I'm pretty much going down a rabbit hole where everything gets sucked in with it. And um, it kind of was the same thing. I had this break between novel contracts. We were, you know, doing the interior design and Anne was, was, you know, helping manage all of that. And uh, I had the time to go out in the yard and every day I was out there five or six hours a day digging up air potato tubers because I knew it was the one thing that could totally destroy any plans of planting native plants and having it be good for wildlife. So I definitely lost perspective. Like, like Anne told me she was actually kind of worried about me during that time. Um, she knows I get obsessional about things and that I do kind of a deep dive on them, but, but she did not expect to suddenly see her husband out in the yard with a, a trowel, I found a trowel that was basically like a, also a serrated knife. So it looked like I was out there with like a mini machete <laughs> and um, just basically hacking at the ground <laughs> for five or six hours a day, getting this stuff out. Um, and then it got worse because I realized that it had spread to neighboring yards. So I had to negotiate with neighbors who didn't care whether it was there or not, whether I could come into their yards and dig it out of their yards. <laughs> How did that and, go? <laughs> um, and I guess the lucky thing is that it was still a finite number of air potatoes. And um, then I learned things along the way, like there was an air potato beetle down in the yard that was helping. The problem was it was overwhelmed. So once I cleared a lot of it, it began to eat the the vine and, and that helps weaken the tuber. Um, and uh, so things like that. So then once I realized also I can pull the vine and it weakens the tuber over time once I've gotten, this is all the technical information. Like, like I really, this was all I thought about for <laughs> months. <laughs> oh, dear. Why, do you, why um, do you feel like this was like got so under your skin? Obviously, it's not the first thing you'd ever gotten under your skin, but it sounds like this one was right. got, got really good in. It, it did. I think the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, and the, the problem I think is that I like I like to really complete a task, and as as um, surreal as my novels can be, I'm actually very structured in terms of providing myself with a, like a creative space to do that. And uh, so I like to be organized in order to be able to relax into that. And, and with the air potato, I just felt like once I started on it. I had to somehow see it through. I, I you know, it, it, it felt like I was, I was abandoning <laughs> a very bad novel, <laughs> maybe, but still, like I was abandoning some narrative that that needed to be completed. And um, 
and thankfully, again, it was still finite enough. Like I, I finally found the end point of the air potatoes ravages. Somehow the, 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 the center of it was this yard. Like some, someone, some fire owner must have planted it or somehow it got loose here and, and spread out. So I also felt responsible. Like it was oddly my fault because I now own the house. Um, even though, again, none of the neighbors really cared that much about it. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, so I really, I really, you know, at the end of the day though, you know, I, I, I still think about it by its absence. Like the fact that I can walk around the whole yard and right around maybe now there will be some very shy, reticent air potato vines coming up, but nothing like the thousands and thousands that were like everywhere. And it's under control. It's just another thing in the landscape, uh, as opposed to the thing that's destroying everything else. Did you? What's the? I have like want to ask some version of a question about like whether you started like what was your psychic relationship like with this? I pretty much plant? dreamed air potato. That's what and, I was going to ask. Were um, you dreaming about air potatoes? I was. I was probably making it into an antagonist, and I really try hard not to to do that. <laughs> nature um and and it wasn't i wasn't like hateful towards the air potato but i was having dreams about vines a lot um and uh the thing i guess is kind of hilarious is that my dreams tend to be nature oriented anyway so it wasn't all that unusual <laughs> vines in them but um but yeah it was very very specific and very um became very personal and the more time i put into it it's like i guess it's like you know, when you invest in something and it's going south, but you've already invested so much in it that that you feel like you have to make through in your investment. And my investment was getting every damn air potato out of the ravine. Um, and then, you know, it, it is true that now I look around and I think, well, that that actually being that obsessed, having that time between novels was was a godsend because you know I, we have so many native plants that have come back from the seed seed bank that that had no chance they were just completely smothered over by this stuff and so you know it actually over time probably i mean i don't know if you if you <laughs> as a full-time freelancer i often think about you know what i'm getting paid by the hour and uh, i don't know what the relative like cost benefit of the air potato out versus the benefit i don't know how you quantify that like like i feel like i was probably yeah, I was probably not, um, not, <laughs> well, I wasn't being paid, first of all, it's true, but I don't know how much time, money I squandered in that sense. I mean, it was all labor, but, you know. Yeah, I was, right, like cents an hour, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably it works out to that, but, but there's some native plants that are real happy, and there's some box turtles that are really happy, and, and um. Yeah, so. What did you know about rewilding before you came in came into this backyard? Because presumably the the great box potato situation was a prelude to a the beginning of a kind of an ongoing process. You said box potato, which made me think that there's a box turtle air potato hybrid ah, out there somewhere. <laughs> Which would be absolutely horrifying. That's really oh, the next step. The wow. air potato hybridizes somehow in some unlikely B-sized fiction movie way with animal life. Oh, um, well, I mean, to be absolutely honest, you know, I'd always like had a bird feeder out. Um, 
always been invested in nature, but usually it was about like hiking somewhere else, like hiking in North Florida, not necessarily about the yard at our old, our old house. But we were, um, two things happened. We were in upstate New York. I was teaching at Hobart William Smith colleges for a semester creative writing. And, um, we lived in a house there that was like very much more like the house we're in now. There were two stories. There was a lot more, a lot more windows. <laughs> it kind of gave us a glimpse of a different life. And then, and then, Trump won <laughs> and we came back to Florida and I immediately like put up 5 billion more, um, more bird feeders, uh, and began in earnest learning about native plants. Cause I, I felt this, this complete lack of, lack of control, um, and paralysis and didn't know what to do with it. And so I thought, well, the one thing I can control is, is this property we already own and I can do better by it. And I was thinking, you know, Trump did, has done a lot of, did a lot of terrible things to people, but he also passed a lot of laws that were terrible for, for wildlife. And so my first thought was, I'll, I'll try to at least make our yard, you know, compensate in a minuscule way for, for some of this and, and also get my mind off it. There'll be something I'll be able to do every day that, that's helpful to the environment. And that's kind of how it started, but it was still kind of a half-assed effort in part because the, the neighbors would like get us sighted for weeds and I'd, I'd have to do silly things like put a little fence around the unruly wildflowers to make them seem more socially acceptable. And, and so it felt a little bit like we couldn't do too much where we were there. So once you had your, uh, air potatoes, not box potatoes, but your air potatoes, <laughs> uh, out, <clears throat> or at least sort of a little bit more under control mm -hmm. in this new space, yeah. Then did you have plans, plans and visions, or did you go kind of one thing at a time? Well, I mean, one thing that the native nurseries people said that made a lot of sense is, is go with the strength of the landscape. So there were a couple of strengths. We had uh, a lot of pokeberry, which the birds love the berries of, and a lot of elderberry, which is similar and is also good for pollinators. So we had a strong backbone of stuff that was just waiting to, to throw off the shackles of the air potato tyranny. Um, and so that that helps shape it. It's like, don't go against the landscape. We have a, a dry creek bed that fills up when it rains. But basically, Native Nurture says you can treat that like it's a wetland because it's always going to retain moisture. So, so it was mostly about then restoring as much as possible, and you're still artificially interfering, the ravine or our portion of it to looking like what you would expect if you went to any unspoiled North Florida ravine. And part of that, the seed bank miraculously uh, accomplished that things came up um, that I would have seen out hiking that I didn't know. And, and things did very well in the yard that, again, I had mostly seen out hiking in ravines. And so there was no real like architecture or structure to the plan for the garden. It was to make it more like North Florida wilderness, you know, our little pocket of it right here in town. And, and that, again, was just in terms of like the yard is for the wildlife. Um, we use no pesticide, no herbicide, uh, no fertilizer, no soil amendments. Uh, we simply go with what we've got. So on the far slope, there is actually sandy soil. And then we have loamy soil. We have clay. We actually, in this ravine in various parts, have almost every kind of soil you could imagine. So there was really no nothing we couldn't plant that's North Florida. We just had to know where it was supposed to live on the slope. And we planted things like terea trees, which are some of the most endangered trees in the world uh and three years on they're just so happy on that slope because it's 
where you normally find them. Right when we were first starting to talk about this, you used this phrase that I thought was really interesting. You're saying my life. I think you said it has basically collapsed into a single point. <laughs> um, and so tell me more about that. I'm assuming the single point is this ravine. And how is it that your your life is sort of com- collapsed or compressed into this this one well, place? I think it's um, it's this um, continued added granularity to the world, um, added detail. And so like we were always political, but you know, Anne was more probably more locally involved in local politics than I was, and she would like give me the information I needed, but I was mostly focused on national politics. When you start to research native plants, you get into all kinds of interesting <laughs> histories. You you have the history of, of settlers, you have the history of um, indigenous land management, and then that all, especially in Tallahassee, which you know has has neighborhoods that, if you go back and look, they're they're basically neighborhoods that used to be plantations, and the names are the same as just a, now a suburban neighborhood. So you have all of that. Um, so the landscape is not neutral; it's political to begin with, and then with all the stuff that that's been going on politically, with the legislature being so anti-environment here in Florida, and all the rest of the stuff, um, just simply planting native plants can provoke that kind of divide you see in other areas uh, of the country or other subjects <laughs> because we become so divisive. So what I would say is that it's, it's, it's both narrowed to a single point because of the fact I'm focused on this so much, but that has opened up so much at the same time. So it's this narrowing down, this widening where I have so much more, I'm so much more involved in local politics, local environmental issues, because of, you know, in part, sometimes the people I would meet who were advocates for native plants, and that would open up something. Um, Or the way politicians here, unfortunately, treat this landscape. Um, We're constantly terraforming it, even when we create a, a, a new park. Chances are what we're talking about is we're chopping down part of a forest to create a park, you know? Um, which is counterintuitive where I come from, you know. <laughs> and so um, you learn all this stuff. Even when you go out on a hike, suddenly I'm no longer looking at birds and 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 trying to see if there's an otter or something. I'm 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 constantly waylaid by the native by the plants and knowing their names, knowing their histories, knowing why some of them are there because of settlers, some of them are there because of indigenous land management, some of them were always there. Um, that sort of thing. So, so the landscape becomes extremely um, political as well, in a sense. Uh, uh, just, just, just going around your, your ordinary life, and, and so that's kind of what I mean. But at the same time, the narrowing down is such that the novels are now beginning to be set in ravines. <laughs> so that's, I guess, what I would also mean is that that the the the, the personal stuff, the career stuff, the political stuff is all kind of becoming the same thing to some degree and i think it's actually good i'm kind of i kind of welcome it as long as again i keep the air potato example of getting too obsessed uh in mind You said something earlier about th- that echoed to me 
a theme from from your books, which was that obviously there were a lot of big policies happening that would make mm. um that would be unfriendly to the natural yeah. world, but you could make your backyard a very tiny friendly place for mm-hmm. the natural world. And I feel like that the question of what the individual can do in the face mm. of a, a mass mass catastrophe that is mm-hmm. slow rolling um comes up in your books a lot and i'm wondering how how this has changed your i mean it comes up in your books that preceded mm-hmm. as far as i can tell this ravine's entrance into your life oh, sure. i'm wondering how this this has changed that for you or that your your thinking around that idea that it just keeps making it more and more personal and then also we're getting closer and closer in and we're getting farther and farther into the climate crisis. So in the early novels, even my first novel, Venice Underground, you know, it, it, it postulated a future Earth that had been ravaged by a climate crisis. I just assumed, you know, this was a novel published in the, in, you know, written in the 90s, published in the early part of this century. Um, so, you know, but, but, but it did not have that personal aspect, um, the lived-in aspect of seeing it firsthand, so to speak, or seeing or knowing what the effect is on planets. Like even even now I can begin to see how this area is changing and how I have to begin thinking about planting more drought resistant things because now we get like heavy rains and then no rain for a couple weeks mm. as opposed to getting a steady rain all summer around three for like two hours. Right. Um, that's definitely a climate crisis thing, the temperature rising, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so I guess again, it, it's just, it becomes more personal, more street level, uh, and expressed more directly in the novels, the closer, the, the farther in we are to climate crisis. Um, so it just seems like a natural progression of dealing with the same topic from vastly different points of view. And, you know, even novels like my Ambergris novels that don't ostensibly have anything to do with climate crisis, they do deal with the modes of thought that get us to a point where we have climate change deniers and things like that. So, so sometimes I like to examine the system systems or the systemic things and what i'm excited about with the ravine novels is i feel like i have the opportunity now to layer in the personal with the systemic in a way i haven't done before because of the rewilding can you say more about that well one thing you know we had thought about long story short we had thought about moving outside of town uh where it's actually cheaper we were we could have gotten more land um, and had no neighbors. <laughs> and um, I think about that a lot because in rewilding, I've had to negotiate a lot of territory with neighbors because we have neighbors all around us. You know, it, it, it definitely is this wild swath of woodland in the middle, but there are neighbors all across the top of this ravine. And not all of them are sympathetic to this idea of rewilding. Some of them are purely neutral. And all of that requires a lot of effort and energy on my part, but it also keeps me very connected uh, to the world. Um, I can't become this hermetically sealed, well, hermit, <laughs> um, off on some lot somewhere just communing with deer every day. Um, I, I am completely and in, in completely reminded of, of the human world every day. So in the novels that I'm beginning to write, there is this, for example, this history of an attempt at what you might call affordable communal housing along the top, the lip of a ravine very much like this one. 
that is environmentally friendly. And this happens in the 70s. It fails. There's a, a fire. One house burns down. The architect's daughter disappears under mysterious circumstances. And then in the present day, a woman moves into the house that's left that he built, the last legacy of it, and it, during a pandemic, and is trying to make sense of some things in her life, but it's also unbeknownst to her, falling into the history of this place because people who were involved with all of that still live in now the kind of suburban half-acre lot houses that were built. Um, and so that immediately suggests some of the layering. I think I've already talked to you about that's come out of the rewilding. Um, you know, what we do with these places, you know, how we terraform things, how we think about housing even. Um, I'm really invested in finding ways... Uh, to express those kinds of things and layer them in so that there's this history layered into the novel that's very applicable. There's an uncanny element too. Um, but then the, the, the novels after that take on things like the surveillance state, uh, even the subprime mortgage crisis of the 2009 or whatever it was. Um, and just keeps layering in things about the history of, of Florida without ever naming the place as Florida uh, in ways that I think um, make each novel kind of like if you have a prestige tv show that isn't set in the same place and just layers a different layer of society in each season for example um so i'm excited about that yeah that sounds that sounds really exciting i mean exciting as a thing that someday i will get to read but also exciting as a project for you to be working on um i something that jumped out at me as you were describing that is something that I was also thinking about reading Hummingbird Salamander, which is how often in your books um, you grapple with the many things that are around human beings, but that they choose not to see or can't see, whether that's history, whether that's um, parts of the landscape, whether that's mm -hmm. pieces of the disappearing world mm. that they would rat there's yeah. there's that um beautiful moment in hummingbird salamander where where jane says like uh she talks about everything that she that it, it would be too difficult to see like how mm. how much energy is spent in in not mm. seeing um and i'm wondering if that is a a, a theme in your work because that is a an impulse you yourself struggle with, or if you're writing outward to the rest of us um, who are who are not seeing. <laughs> when, no, I think it's a process. Out. I mean, I think I feel very guilty about the fact that until recently there was a lot of stuff I didn't see, and I think as a writer, you're supposed to try to see things um, that have been rendered invisible and make them visible on the page. I, mean, I think that's part of what the job of a writer is, is to, and that's what that really is, is questioning foundational assumptions about the way we live in society. And I always have thought a writer should be doing that. Um, and so it's partly my guilt about the fact that until just a few years ago, I would be driving through any neighborhood here in town and not realize that I was driving sometimes through, you know, wildlife wastelands. Things would look burdened and, and lawns would look spotless. Um, and that basically it's like a sterile landscape, just to give one example. So you know, now I can drive through an adjacent neighborhood and sure there are great live oaks and everything, but I can tell now, um, 
exactly where someone used, has used herbicide. I can tell when there's been a pesticide application on a lawn, even if there's no sign. Um, I know the exact provenance of all the non-native plants and how useless they are, or sometimes even hazardous to wildlife. So it really, you know, it really changes uh, how you even see greenery. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes you're like, oh, this person really knows what they're doing. Um, and I still don't know everything I'm doing. But, but it comes out of a, a lack on my part and a trying to make up for it and uh, less than, uh, than a, um, lecturing other people, you know, why don't you see this? Um, and so that, that's where it comes from. And then in hummingbird salamander, I thought it'd be interesting to have this juxtaposition of this dead ecoterrorist, Sylvina, who, who does have this wider awareness, but then is kind of hampered by the fact she comes from this billionaire background. And then Jane, who has no environmental like leanings at all, really, when the novel starts and gets to kind of a very basic place of understanding and empathy, um, which is all very under understandable because, you know, the world itself is very um, antithetical to what I would call this kind of like wider truth. You know, you Google any common urban animal and you get a pest control company telling you you need to kill it or trap it. Um, that's what Google does as an algorithm. You know, the first five things that come up <laughs> are all going to be about how this thing, like a, if, you, if you hear a flying squirrel in the night, you got to kill it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not funny, but it is absurd. It's like the most ridiculous overkill in terms of advertising you could see. And, and the world does that to us. And so we're trained uh, that this stuff is bad, that, that nature is bad. That if you see a raccoon during the day, it's automatically rabid as opposed to probably just getting extra food for kids, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, I had one neighbor tell me that an armadillo, I loved armadillos in the yard, had bared its fangs at him. And it's like, okay, well, number one, they don't have fangs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so, so the world that we've created is, you know, there's all this propaganda out there. And part of that is to protect us, I guess, in a sense, in, in a very cruel way from all the damage we're doing, you know. If we, if we think that we're not doing damage, then, you know, if we think that clear-cutting 200 acres here in town isn't killing any wildlife, then, then it isn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I mean, but another thing you write about so eloquently and that I've been thinking about a lot as I've gone back through your work is how painful it is to, to really be looking around <laughs> and, and how just like, how devastating it is to to be able to drive through neighborhoods and see mm. not just like pretty lawns but poison um how do you how do you cope with that <laughs> i don't know that that's a yeah, random no, question it's, it's just like a human question how do you how do you manage that i think everybody you know given the state of the news these days grapples with this like how do you stay unfrozen how do you manage your own mental health. <laughs> um, and I think for me, it gets back to the fact that I, I reorient myself by the yard. And, and I've, I've, I've written about this for, like there's an Esquire article about how you can create a tiny habitat on your balcony. So it, this is very egalitarian. It's not like you have to like own property to, to feel this way. And, and it may be something else for someone else. But for me, it is very, very important to um, be oriented by the yard to realize that a possum lives three years, uh, cardinals, a bird in the yard, maybe lives four or five years. They have a very different life cycle. So, so I can provide um, 
environment for them where they're not, they'll never have to, to grapple with climate crisis except for several generations down, down the road. I can create a safe environment that has plenty of water, that has plenty of natural food, um, where they don't have to worry about any kind of human intervention on their lives. Um, and that gives me a lot of solace. So, you know, even going out and weeding and seeing the little micro world of all the amazing insects in the yard. I mean, I, I can't, yesterday I was out there and I just, I could not believe this whole micro world that I still don't know the extent of. I mean, last year I found a, a, a daytime firefly in the yard. It's only been recorded like 33 times on iNaturalist, only twice in Florida. You know, here it is living in this, you know, naturalists don't even really know much about it. And here it is living in this urban ravine in Tallahassee. Now, so I think about those moments and those allow me to then, you know, focus on the regional city government, national issues and be effective on those things. Uh, because if I, if I didn't have that anchor, if I didn't have that solace, it would be very difficult. And even so, I, I don't know how climate scientists do it. I don't know how environmental reporters do it. You know, I just finished this, this long article for current affairs on the state of Florida, <laughs> environmentally and uh and and that nearly broke me uh and i had to go out in the yard a lot so it's definitely an issue and it definitely is a thing where almost like the air potato obsession i kind of monitor myself uh and 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 forgive myself if i can't act on a certain environmental issue or i can't do this or that until i have a moment to kind of recalibrate and then I just grapple with it again. Another thing I remember, recall, and this is a, a kind of a theme in some of the books, maybe even Hummingbird Salamander, is that, that we have to recalibrate what we mean by failure and success in the environmental struggle. Yes, please, uh, please tell me. I did. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about that. I'm very um, inspired by well, that idea. Well, it's just that you know we we do live in a very capitalist society, so we have this metric in place as to what success is and what failure is, and I think a lot of times we do move the needle with environmental causes that fail. Um, but they move the needle forward. They they preserve something, even if they don't get their everything that you wanted or whatever. But the, the point is that um, you know we need we're going to continue to have a series of battles where we're going to lose <laughs> a lot of the time, and we have to be inured against the um, the loss and and move on. And and I, I think one thing that really stuck with me is actually a very political thing in part because of the wildlife, because um, of the box turtles. Uh, I got to meet uh, Anna Eskamani, who's a, a house rep here in Florida from the Orlando area. And she's a progressive and she's just amazing. I, I just can't believe the amount of stuff she does. But I asked her, we were talking, we, we, again, I got to meet her because she loves box turtles. I post about them on Twitter a lot. And uh, I said, how do you, how do you stay so positive and focused? And she said, well, I just stay so busy. I always stay one step ahead of the bastards, basically, by just staying so busy. If, if this thing doesn't work, then I move on to the next thing. And uh, I really took that to, I took that to heart. Um, and and I, I think about that moment a lot in terms of like how I conduct things. So I, I try very hard to use the yard to recalibrate. So if something is does turn out not as great as I would have thought environmentally on an issue I'm working on, um, I move on to the next thing, uh, and I just reboot as much as possible.
You're one of the only people I know who seems to use Twitter in a way that makes me happy that Twitter exists. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you have like a, do you have like a theory of, of Twitter that you apply to your use of it? Or like, how is it that you are, um, that you incorporate that platform into your life and into your work and everything else? Well, first of all, I want to apologize to everyone who follows me on Twitter when I post too much, because sometimes there's so much natural wonder in the yard. I just basically am posting about my day and I, I feel bad later that when I look back, and there's like 12 tweets about fox turtles and mockingbirds and stuff. But I think it, what it goes back to is actually even before the internet, um, you know, I came out of small press before I had contracts with large publishers and I had to do a lot of my own publicity and I really don't like doing publicity. Um, I, I like creating things. So I would, use that opportunity to create things for publicity um, that were their own like creative things in their own right, regardless of whether the book existed or not. And then when the internet came along, I just kind of applied that to uh, early on to Facebook and, and Twitter, where there would be these actual meta projects that would be the promotion in a sense, uh, short, strange videos, a, a, a short movie based on one of the novels. It's absolutely awful, but if you can see it online still, it's, it's hilarious. Um, but, but basically what I'm saying is that the idea was to have fun. Uh, and I strongly believed uh, that there were a lot of writers taking these tools too seriously as a direct method to activate sales um, and then looking at the stats on how badly, you know, like, like you're never going to get everybody who follows you to buy your book anyway. So why are you kind of, you know, I understand the impulse. And if I was a younger writer, by the time I entered Twitter, maybe I'd have a different point of view because it is a hellacious world out there for publishing. But I just wanted to have fun. <laughs> that said, when I started posting about nature, I thought for sure I was going to lose, like they'd already been through the interior design thing. Like I posted all this stuff of wacky furniture when we were decorating the house. And, and I thought, well, I'll lose some followers. And I gained some followers on that. You know, I stopped posting book wrecks and suddenly I'm posting about this 50 year old box turtle in the yard. And I thought I'm going to lose followers. And I, I gained like 10,000 followers in six months. Whoa. So, <laughs> so that, that, that kind of rewarded a sense of play, a sense of um, positivity and then the other thing that happened was I got so many people emailing me or direct messaging me about how they decided to stop using herbicide because of one of my tweets about the yard or they had started planting wild, you know, or they had just stopped raking their leaves so that there was leaf litter for, for fireflies. So I got this incredible positive reinforcement, which with the novels is more indirect. Uh, you know, on, on book tours, I'll, I'll get people say, well, I went into environmental science because I read Annihilation or something like that. But um, but with this, it was like constant affirmation. I was doing something right. Um, but yeah, it just comes down to the idea that I have to have fun <laughs> doing this. So hopefully that actually translates to fun for the person absorbing it. And then if they buy my book, great. But the, the main reason I'm on there is maybe for more of a sense of community. Uh, than to sell books, so to speak. Well, can I, but we're sort of edging up on time and I don't want to take advantage of your, of your morning, but oh, no. um, is there something that's growing back there right now that you're especially excited about? Some things have just stopped blooming, like the Rue Anemone that's, um, I think it's between, I'm anticipating things. So the, the Rue Anemone, which is an endangered plant we planted in the limestone garden, and it went from one plant to like 12 now. 
over three years and had these beautiful white flowers. So I was really happy to see that. And it just stopped blooming, which means it's almost time for the fringed campion, which is this another endangered species that only exists in parts of North Florida and maybe I think South Carolina. And it's done remarkably well in a patch too. So I'm waiting for those amazing kind of ruffled pink flowers to come up. Uh, right now it's, it's kind of just everything is green. Um, I guess the main thing that I'm really happy about right now is the tulip poplar that I planted is doing amazingly well. It's just growing by leaps and bounds. It loves where it is. It's going to be a beautiful big tree. And then the ash magnolia, which is a, another endangered species <laughs> here in North Florida. I thought it had died. Um, they do lose their leaves over the winter, but it also just looked really dead. And it just came back with these amazing, huge leaves, which gives me a lot of hope that it's actually going to bloom uh, this year. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.